you got to get passionate about this thing. If the cross doesn't move you, nothing will move you. I'm offering you something that's greater than silver and gold. I'm offering you something that's greater than an increase in your pay on your job. I'm offering you a... There's no shortcuts to the glory. We've got to get past week-to-week living. We've got to multiply our prayer life. We've got to multiply our efforts. And we are willing to give. God will always give it back to us in good measure. That is pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Hey, thanks for checking out our Christian Life Church podcast. You will be hearing from one of our pastors or guest speakers, either at our Frankfurt or Lebanon campus. Prepare your hearts and your minds to receive a word from God. Thanks for listening. Enjoy and receive this message. Sunday, and I'm sure they're working hard on that, or I'll have to change a light bulb, one of the two in the projector, but I'm grateful for a good old sword that that the Lord has given, amen. We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 through 9, and tonight is kind of a, a, a little bit of something I hope to visit again very soon. And to continue on, it kind of sparked some things in me um, several weeks ago where I felt uh, led to kind of talk about um, kind of what my ministry is about. The, the Lord has blessed us to be called family pastors, and so why not focus on the family from time to time? Amen. Last year, we had a wonderful thing printed out where it had a bunch of Friday night dates and as those dates would come and go, sometimes it was like we just, it's smart if we cancel because nobody's showing up Friday night. And it's not that we had Fridays without you. It's not that we, we just did stuff without you, but we knew it was probably best just with how busy we were. But I'm thankful that this year there's some opportunities for me to bring what I feel to bring in the ministry of our families. Amen. And so it all started with the thought of, of raising Christian children and and. I hope to get to that soon, but I thought, well, I'd better start at the root of the thing and and talk about marriage for a little bit. Amen? (laughs) Now, if you're not married, if you're divorced, if you're a widow, if you're any of those things, I promise this is for you still. Because families matter. And you were born from a family. And Amen? No aliens in here. Bless God. No outer space, extraterrestrials, no UFOs. We are family-born people. Amen. All right, I'll keep going. I'll quit. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 through 9, and it reads like this. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, aren't, first of all, aren't you glad it didn't stop there? Hello? share a story real quick just sit down sit down you stood for a little bit of the word I've got a lot of word tonight just sit down with me my goal is if I had a goal tonight first of all to always be done in about 40 minutes bless the Lord because I know it's Wednesday and with the heat it just makes us tired and that's okay it's nice air conditioning I'm thankful for a church that'll pay the bills and keep the air on 
Hallelujah. They don't shut it off at 8 just to try to save that extra couple bucks. I'm thankful it stays on as long as we're here. But I remember in, yeah, let, let me read that again before I tell my story here. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Again, when I was in kindergarten, I felt like a sinner. I had a girl that was dying to hold my hand. It was springtime. I relate to this because I've got now a six-year-old who just graduated kindergarten, and I quiz him from time to time. There ain't no girls trying to hold your hands, are there? Because I had that experience, and so my presumption was that they were going to have the same experience. And it was a little girl that was quite a bit taller than me, maybe five inches taller, and she was built a little bit bigger than me. I was just a tiny little guy, and her name was Lakeisha. And she was determined she's going to hold my hand. And I thought, okay, we're going to hold hands. We were in Elkhart. It was a good part of town. We were just holding hands. We were, we were good. And I, I'm just telling you, the guilt rid up in me and rode up in me, and it was everywhere. And I broke up with her before the day was out. I said, I can't go home as a boyfriend to my parents who don't allow me to date yet. So I had to make sure I got the sin out of my life. Hello? We're going to get to parenting next time, but I promise you, it. for me, it all started back at, in kindergarten with, with Lakeisha, and I don't know what God's ever done with her since then. I just remember kindergarten, she was determined, but thankful I got out of that relationship. Amen. And so it continues to read, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. And let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. And likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you might give yourselves to fasting and prayer. This is not a marriage counseling seminar. And come together so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say to you this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one of you has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say that the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I want to pray over this tonight. I know I started off a little different, but I want to pray, and it's got a funny title to it. It's called Warm Wedding Cake. Warm Wedding Cake. I won't even make sense till I get to the end. But I want to pray that God has his way in our families and in our marriages and in our homes. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you've given us. God, I do pray that you have your way. Even everything that I have to say, Lord, I pray that it be under your glory, Lord, that it belongs to you, but under your anointing, God. Let my mouth and my mind be in line with your will, God, and for this time and for this church. I pray your blessing and, and your will in our lives in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Amen. It's one of the most quoted scriptures when we get to marriage counseling, especially the end. It's better to marry than to burn. I've heard my pastor even say it, and it's it's almost out of context sometimes because it's just that little chunk. I read seven or nine verses to get to that. It's better to marry than to burn, right? Now, again, in our lives, some of us don't have picture-perfect nuclear families and, and, and lives, and there's a lot that comes between us and others. But the truth is even marriage itself is extremely hard 
it's hard to come together with somebody that you've dated and, and been infatuated with, but as feelings subside, now you have to learn to live with them. Amen? Here's the real funny part to me, at least. They say that until around the 1930s, the average wedding or marriage was around 28 years. It's not because everyone went through divorce. It's because everyone died young. And so now that we live longer, now that we've, we've, we've not gotten back to the days of Moses and of, and of Enoch and all these others, but we live to a good age to where now when we look at marriage, it, it scares some people. They'll still get married, but the thought of being married until death do you part, it's non-existent. And it, 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 it changes the mind, but, but marriage is a God thing. And, and I don't believe I have the scripture written down, but I've always uh, found it fascinating. When we look at the root of marriage, God made marriage uh, essentially for one purpose, and that was to show Christ's love for the church. Just as a man loves his wife, so does Christ, doth love his church. And so uh, even when he made Adam and Eve, it was with the intentions of a church to where one day he could show his love for his bride. Amen? And so I want to take us back, if I can, and, and really dive into that first marriage, which we would go to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. It kind of reads like this. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant in the sight of good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now there was a river that went out of Eden and watered uh, to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Kishon, and it is the one which searched the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Uh, and then it gives more stuff like onyx and different stones that were there. The name of the second river is Gihon, the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is Hidekel. And, and it talks about all these rivers. And as we get down to the tree, uh, skipping down a few verses, it says, of, of every tree of the garden that you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord finally said, it is not good that man should be alone. And I will make him a help meet comparable to him. And so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each of the living creatures, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, all the birds of the air, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable, comparable to him. And the Lord God then caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he had made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And he said, Adam, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So this is the first place that we see what happens. And, and it was around this time where we see what sin had transpired in the garden. Uh, because they had these two trees. Everybody knows about the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. 
Those were the two trees. It's, it's amazing. There might be a time where I show you in different cultures because it was so uh, uh, exciting to me when I look at apologetics to prove that the Bible's true. Have you ever had somebody that you just want to prove the word of God is true? And, and so I'll go back to the old, uh, uh, even Chinese, uh, the, the hieroglyphics that they would write or their, their uh, I can't even think of the words right. We, we say English, obviously, in our transcript. But as they would write it, they would talk about different words that would come from two trees. And so here was Adam and Eve in this garden. The Bible says they were to tend it. And so it was just Adam by himself until finally God said, it's not good that man should live alone. This is why we believe, as much as Paul said, it's better that you not marry or even touch a woman, that we'll just keep reading a little bit and realize that Paul said that, and it's not contrary to the word of God, but God said it's not good for man to live alone. He also said be fruitful and multiply, which is where we get our generations and our genealogies. And so you will see woven throughout scriptures this need and necessity for good, wholesome marriages and good lives that have come together. I don't know about your past. I'm not digging into none of that. I'm not talking about the sin of anything that you can go with. The truth is he made man a woman. Do you realize how many sins, and when we look at the world today, how much they're trying to go against the very fabric of what God has set up? For example, he made them naked and unashamed. When you look in today's culture, the desire is to mess up gender so bad that nobody knows what's what, and you can choose whatever you were, but God made man and female, made them husband and wife, left them naked and unashamed. That's why those trees were so dangerous, because it wasn't that they were going to be good and evil, it was the sheer knowledge of good and evil. They were going to know what was right and wrong. They might have been doing it the whole time, but the knowledge of it changed everything. And so you have Adam and Eve and, and this perfect marriage, right, this perfect wedding and this perfect husband and wife. And, and as I read through Scripture, and I hope I don't end up coming back to it in, in, in my notes, and, and I try to, try to relate at the same time, stay grounded to what I wrote down because I felt God in prayer tell me what to write. So bear with me. But as we see this man and this wife, Scripture says that God was the first one to call Eve his wife. God did. Adam named her woman. But God called her your wife. When he went looking for her, he said, Adam, where is, where are you? Who told you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? And 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 what is it? What is where is you and where are you and your wife? Where's where's this coming from? And so he began to to dive into this when sin had taken place, but I kind of want to go back to that sin. Have you ever wondered who was wrong, Adam or Eve? Let's take a poll. Who said Eve did it? Man, you nervous? Who said it's Adam's fault? Nice. Anybody want to go back to Eve? All right, all right, like that. The rest of you, we're going to find out. <laughs> so the Bible says that God told Adam, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every other tree you can eat of. Don't eat of that tree. Then he made woman, as Adam called her. And the Bible says that Adam told the woman, don't even touch it. And so the snake came and it was cunning and it said, well, I'm touching it. And are you afraid that you're going to know everything that God knows and, and begin to spill out all these guts? And here is Eve 
taking it and eating it. Why? And I think because she was told not to touch it. When really, the scripture said don't eat it. Now, I'm all for fences. I'm all for boundaries. We're not going to go there. Why? Because there's remnants of sin. We're not, you know, we're, we're not going to partake of, of just sitting in a bar after midnight and just trying to just hang out with all the other drunks. So we're not drinking. I get it, but we're not going to go there. And really, the sin might happen in the drunkardness, but, but we're going to stay away. We're going to abstain from the very appearance. But Adam never told Eve that. He said, just don't touch it or you will die. And so when the snake touches it, no death. And so we have this first misconception of, of Scripture and, a, and really just a misspeaking of truth, so to speak. But they didn't have that knowledge of good and evil, right? They didn't know what they were saying was right or wrong. They just knew that what Adam had perceived is don't touch it, stay away. A snake could come and with the spirit of Satan could just flat out say, well, I'm, I'm touched and twist the very fabric of God. And so they partook and they know it and they knew the truth now. And and it's amazing to me when I look at that, then you see Adam names the woman Eve, the mother of all living things. In our marriages, it's important that there is validity in both a husband and in the wife. It's important that when you look at your spouse, that you cannot just say you're my spouse, but that they have a name, they have a purpose, they have just as much right to the throne of God as you do, they have as much right to anointing and to covering and to being in the will of God, and God can use them in a mighty way, no matter if they're male or female, God can use you no matter what. But some of our marriages, we simply say, yeah, me and the old ball and chain. Me and the old lady, I cannot stand that thing. Sometimes the guy's older than his wife, and she'll say, yeah, the old lady. What are you talking about? She's got more gray than all of us put together, and that's the old lady. It's, it's not naming what God has given you. I think it's, it's funny. In our marriage, um, we've never just been Brandon and his wife or Ashley and her husband, thank God. Because my wife sometimes gets a lot more press than I do. And I've seen it where you go around and she'll get to sing and I'm just known as Ashley's husband for some. And so I have to explain myself. No, you remember Ashley, right? The, the singer, that's, I'm, I'm her husband, I'm Brandon. <laughs> and so it's always an explanation. But we, we made an email account as, as, a, as a married couple, especially when we had Charlie. We just called ourselves ABCs. And it was <laughs> a, Ashley, Brandon, and Charlie. And it was who we were because everything had... Uh, a family to it. We were one. We were a unit. It wasn't about Brandon's the greatest or or here's our superstar or here's, here's what's coming up. And we didn't just live our lives for each other, but together we became one to live our lives for God. It's imperative no matter what your husband or wife, and, and, and the truth is we can't just keep holding on to what has happened in the past. I hope to go somewhere. I don't, I don't have time to spell out everything I've read in books and tried to to piece together a, a thought for tonight or a, a message for it all, but we truly have to get to a point where we understand that we married somebody that is flawed as much as we are flawed. And it's in our flaws and our humanity that God has the ability to make us something more than what we are. So they say that 
the number one problem in marriages that in marriages and I think I've spoke on this it's been a while but I'm thankful my pastor made mention of this I think it was Sunday that teaching is line upon line and and you repeat the same thing so let me repeat it they say that the number one thing that fails a marriage is contention contention it's not that well I fell out of love with him now they say infatuation lasts for two years you know what's funny to me? I used to preach this to young people. So if you ever wondered what I taught up there, it was this stuff. Because your young people mattered to me, and I didn't want them just dating whoever looked good. I didn't want them going after the one that made them feel good. I just want them to be with Jesus. When you become an adult, get out of here, and then you figure that out with God and your family and your pastor. Amen? But for here and now, focus on Jesus. And so it was all about trying to break down infatuation. They say infatuation lasts two years. You ever see somebody and you're like, my Lord, they're gorgeous. And, and maybe you get to hang around them for a while. And, and if you're not careful, especially if you are married, you don't protect yourself against that, that I've got to put that out of, out of my life or out of my mind, that, that truly you can become infatuated with them. That's where a lot of affairs will start is just simple infatuation where, where things aren't dealt with and, and you don't keep yourself in check because the truth is a spouse will most oftentimes bring out the sin that lies in you. That's what makes things so hard is because they get to see your flaws. And so they might call it out, and that makes it horrible sometimes. There's, there's, uh, you know, we have a, a monitor in our house. <laughs> Never mind. Y'all weren't born back then. In, in my, my early years, we always told the pastor, yeah, we have a monitor. We don't have a TV, right? And it's amazing what you might watch alone, but then when your spouse is there, it's like, yeah, we're not renting that movie. It'll call out the sin. Because then you sit there the whole time, and you're like, boy, they've cussed. And, and you've got to just think for a second what, you know, it makes you wonder. Is your spouse just sitting there thinking, what in the world are you watching? What are you into? Are you really this sinful? Are you really this far from God? A spouse helps pull out some of those things in you. And so when we see that, if we're not careful and keep it in check, because the point of that threefold cord of a, of a wife and of a husband and of God being all mixed together in marriage, if we're not careful and keep those things in check, contention will begin to show up. All of a sudden, and I, you'll have to forgive me. I love you. You know that, right? God bless you. I use this in youth class. I only say it, it's not a point of contention. But if I'm not careful, it could have been. My wife throws the trash out in the garage constantly. She grabs it from the kitchen. We don't sit with trash in our house. That's nasty. So you take it all the way 10 steps. You open the door and you just throw it in the garage. And then in the mornings, I get out there and I'm running late. And I'm kicking the shoes on. I'm like, in Jesus name. And you throw them in the trash can. And on Wednesday mornings, you drag the cash, trash can to the street, just like this morning. You set it there, and you hope it stays. You walk away, and, man, it's going to fall. And so, and if I don't question myself for a while, what's wrong with my wife? Can't she take the trash out? Can't she even do that? And contention can build. Something so simple that can really begin to just intermingle in a marriage and begin to tear you apart. And you not really realize why. And you got these little things where you don't want to make a fight about it, so you just stay quiet about it. Or you load up and you wait for later, right? Better get back to the notes. So he made these co-equal beings naked and unashamed. In the garden, woman was taken from man out of the ribs, a helpmeet 
or a, uh, and I believe this is the correct pronunciation, a succor, or a S-E-C-C-O-R, a succor. Uh, one built for assistance and help in times of hardship and distress. Now, Adam taught Eve not to touch the tree because he added to the word of God. And God did not uh, uh, tell them to not touch it, but to not eat it. And so there was deception that happened there. But there's something powerful about the word a help me. I know I read it fast, but I want you to understand that it was in the garden before sin that he labeled her a helpmate, a succor. He labeled her a help in times of distress and hardship. They're in the garden. If you don't think that God has a plan and a purpose for your life, even through your marriage, to not understand, well, man, I married the wrong woman. No, you didn't. Once you walk down that altar, everything that was wrong before is now right and perfect in the will of God. My pastor believes that, and I stand behind him with that. In, in marriage counseling, I always heard it, uh, Brother Terry Shock would always say it. He would do marriage counseling with, with hundreds and hundreds of people in Louisiana, and his goal was, him and his wife, their goal, number one goal, to break you up. What kind of marriage counseling is that? But if they can break you up, anybody can break you up. And so people didn't like him. I, I, I had to get up here and disclaim it, but I'm going to tell you right now, that's always my goal. If I can break you up when you're engaged, when you're dating, y'all maybe check yourself and see if it's really worth sticking around. Because once you're married, you become a God thing. And it becomes a perfect will of God. And now it's don't ever get divorced. This is a God thing. Well, me and my husband, I married somebody unequally yoked. They're not in church. It's a God thing. We got to work on it. Well, I understand abuse. Listen, I'm not the pastor. I'm not going to tell you where those lines are drawn. You can you can meet with him and I, not tonight, tonight, not tomorrow, not Friday, not Saturday, bless God, but sometime soon you can meet with him. But my goal and my point is, through all of it, you're in the will of God. Even contention shouldn't draw you apart. It's the perfect will of God. It's a God thing. And so it's in this marriage that he begins to start what we now call a nuclear family, right? Where mom and dad are both present and they're both in the home. Genesis 3 and 16 reads like this. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain I shall bring forth children. And uh, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I want to explain some things tonight that are very hard for us. Let me ask it in a question form. Who's in charge in a marriage? Who thinks the husband's in charge? Who thinks the wife's in charge? That's hilarious. There's, there's a lot more than I saw. I just saw two guys in the back that were like, What's the Bible say? It doesn't mean one can't be a little bit more dominant than the other. It just means we have to know where we're at. The Bible says that he took Eve from the rib, right? Perfect. They were together. They're the same plane. But then sin happened. And then we just read in Genesis 3 where it says that he will make man over the wife. And so now we have this tiered leadership. In fact, we read later in Scripture where it says, and, and God is ahead of Christ, and Christ is ahead of man, and man is ahead of the wife. We read this, and we don't like those scriptures. That can't apply to us. That must have just been written out in the, the great abyss. But no, there's, there's a rule to this marriage thing that's hard. 
right? Y'all okay still? I promise. I don't know how long I've been going, but I'm not anywhere near as far as I need to be. It's, I, I promise in the next 15 minutes I'm going to get somewhere. So um, in this, we see this, this, this tearing, this leadership. That's, that's the world wants to mess us up. They want to kill this rugged masculinity or toxic masculinity and make everyone just easy going. And there's nothing wrong if you're not this guy that's over, over the top. That's fine. I'm not that guy. I'm not here to fight you. But even a rat backed into a corner is going to turn around and fight. So in the mix of it, it's not that men have to be this crazy get out of my way and I'm just this jerk of a toxic masculinity. You can just smell the sweat on me all the time. But I'm not a part of the world either where it says that, oh, it's just okay no matter who's a part of what marriage or this life or that life. It's, it's got order. It's a biblical thing. Amen? That caused issues for me and my pastor. And so we see this man over the wife. And so I've always heard it taught, and I've taught it myself, that, that we have roles in this marriage thing that we're doing. And the truth is that in my home, I am king of the castle. Pleased to meet you. But I have a guard that's always watching the walls. And so I know the role that my, my family has when I just look at me and my wife. I don't like nights. She knows this. It's not that I don't ever want to be alone. I'm, I'm sure it seems like that with her or anything of that nature. I don't like when the kids spend the night at the grandparents. Sorry, grandparents. Love my children. If you get your grandkids all the time and your, your kids love it, you need to check your kids or something. But I love being at home with my kids. We have a great time. Amen. <laughs> I don't know what better skip that point. And so but in my home I make sure that I, I get to make the decisions. Amen. I get to be in charge. But my wife watches ever so gingerly. There's not a lot of stuff, and it looks like I just can't make a decision. A lot of people, oh, you're too kind, and you're not very forceful. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I don't read that in Scripture where I can be too kind, so I'll be kind. I have no problem with that, and no problem not trying to find a fight. I'm, I'm just like my pastor. I, I, I don't try to run from confrontation. I just avoid it at all costs. <laughs> and so, but I look at my wife, and I, I see a, a strong lady. I'm thankful because she's like, uh-uh, mm-mm, not happening. I'm like, okay, turn the guard loose. There are times in restaurants we'll get cut in line. Somebody will lose our table. Somebody will treat us like trash. I'm such a people person. I can't stand the way that it makes me feel when I know that I've got to just tell you, you are horrible at your job. You should quit and find somebody else right now. And so I'll deal with it. We're going to get through it. Like we'll, we'll leave. Does anybody sit in the McDonald's line and check your order? Y'all are crazy think they're going to do something or whatever got wrong. You just take it and run, right? <laughs> and I tell my kids, you get what you get. You don't throw a fit, all that stuff. If there's no sweet and sour sauce, we'll make our own. It's got apricot and it's got salt and it's got pepper. We'll stir something together. We'll figure it out. But my wife's the type where she's like, we're going back. And I'm thankful for a guard of my home. When the movies are rented, hello? When we decide, what are we going to do for entertainment? Where are we going to go? What hotel are we going to stay at? She'll guard the home. She'll make sure it's a safe place. It's, it's not me being cheap saying, I ain't spending that extra $10 for the nice neighborhood. <laughs> My father, he's not here tonight. I love him. 
I, don't, I hope he doesn't listen to it. Y'all need to stop telling my family when I talk about them because you guys get me in trouble. But we went up, I believe it was my grandfather's funeral. He was in his 80s, and, and I believe dementia had kind of hit. And so it was, it was sad. I love my grandfather. I didn't get too close to him, but close enough that he was just a good, stern man. But we let my dad pick out the hotels. And it was, it was one that hadn't had the carpet changed since I was probably born. And this was just a handful of years ago, and the stains were everywhere. And I thought, dear Lord, where are we? And my wife's looking at me, and she, we are not staying here. You are not bringing our family into this. There's got to be bed bugs. And, and so it's imperative and important that I let my wife make some of these decisions. I don't know about your home. Maybe the husband does it all. But I try to make sure that she's got as much say and as much right to the marriage as I do. She's got to have as much buy-in as I do, as much skin in the game. If, if we end up losing the house and going bankrupt, I, I want her to be able to stay at home and do all that. But she's got just as much ownership as I do as to why this might have happened. We check the finances, and, and when we're trying to save, whatever the case might be, we find ourselves having to work together. It's my helpmate. Doesn't mean that sin happened and we don't have this hierarchy, but I still look to her as God intended and I say, this is one that I'm going to when I need to. This is one in my time of distress or in my time of, of, of hard times. This is the one I turn to. Make sure your spouse is the one that you turn to first in these hard times. It's between them and going to God. I'm not saying God's second. But if you think going to work and talking about it first is better than going to talk to your spouse, you've got it twisted up. That's where contention comes in when you get home and they find out you've been talking with family members and not them. They have to find out secondhand what you really think because you couldn't just tell honestly the way it is with them. It matters that you're open enough and you're going to have to fight some of those things. You're going to have to go against it. They say that a marriage truly doesn't understand its fruition until it's at its 10th anniversary. But most marriages fold up in the first five years. People are giving up on something that they've made God ordained, whether it was meant to be or not. They've made it that way, and God stands behind his word. So here they are, and then they go through year after year, never working on themselves. It's always the other one's fault, right? And then they get to that benchmark where they're like, well, I really only loved you the way you used to be five years ago, and now I don't love you the way you are. And so there's this massive tears and, and, and hurt that happen, all this contention, all because they left God out. All because they never got themselves in check and right with what God had set in order. Amen? I know there's hardship even in this room, and I don't mean to, to, to just beat up on things. So to, let me say it like this. To the single, to the celibate, you are being Christ-like. There's a whole organization of people, most, mostly the Catholics that remain celibate. A lot of um, monks will do the same, and they'll... They'll learn sign language. I, some of them won't talk for like three or four decades. Crazy trying to get close to God. And, and they choose this life, and some people say, oh, man, they're the most like God. They're, they're the closest you can be to God. And the truth is that, yes, he lived without knowing a woman, and you are being Christ-like. But to those that are working on your marriage, you are in relationship with Christ. It's not just trying to be like him, but now you're in relationship with him, and, and, and you're in that relationship showing and, and examining yourselves to be Christ-like and showing Christ's love for the church. Those that have been widowed, 
I learned this at our last marriage retreat. And I hate that it has to be said there where it doesn't apply to anybody that's there working on a marriage. You know what happens when your spouse goes to the grave ahead of you? Do you understand what happens in your covenant? Because that's what we make before God. It's a covenant. Does anybody think that it breaks your covenant? Everyone's confused, aren't they? Nope, give us the right answer. It fulfills it. It takes what you've promised to God, and until death do us part, it fulfills a covenant. That's why it matters I make it the whole way. If I can, if God will help me, if, if I'll keep my life centered in Christ. Now, I know it's, it's, trust me, there are some here that are just hurt, wounded souls. Some of you, again, unequally yoked, where one, one parent's trying to leave everybody to Christ, the other one might sit at home. And so you're trying, and, and sometimes that might break a marriage because that unequally yoked business, it's hard because one's pushing while the other one's pulling. And, and we have all of this mess that seems to happen. But the truth is that God, even in those marriages, he honors you. He, he, he takes note of your covenant. Stay true to what you're supposed to stay true to. And when that covenant is fulfilled, that's where that death does, does us part. It's nothing else, but it's through that that we have that fulfilling of a covenant with God. Amen? move on as best I can. Eight o'clock. I'm not even close. Y'all need to pray for me. The Bible says, take heed the voice of your wife. The first marriage was Adam and the woman. And then he finally got to where it was Adam and Eve. It's funny. We refer to something that wasn't even so until the, the garden was over. When we talk about Adam and Eve, it's not about the garden. That was Adam and the woman. He didn't even give names. He didn't even cause uh, that to happen in, until that moment. Now, uh, let me, if I can, again, moving as fast as I can because I don't want to keep you here all night. Marriage is going to be tough. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And some of you that are single or d divorced or, or widowed or uh, too young, whatever the case might be, or, or whatever the circumstances are, you came from a family, and, and maybe you don't realize how tough it was for your parents to stay together. Marriage is tough. And it's in this tough marriage that we uh, finally get to where we grow, and, and that toughness is essential for you to stay together. Does anybody ever wish you could just be a multimillionaire and you didn't have to work again? I tell people all the time, listen, there is a number that I live by it's about $5 because if I could put that in the bank, even with inflation going crazy, I think I could live off the interest, that 5% if I'm good, and then put the rest away and keep rolling it. I could grow it until the money doesn't match the, the lifestyle and, and just live out the rest. Hello? You'll have to forgive me. Those thoughts hit my mind. It's not even heaven sometimes. It's just $5 million. I just I just want to not wake up at 530 in the morning and go sweat all day long in the heat. This might be a heat message. It might be, about all, might be about the weather more than anything. But the truth is that even in marriage that we have to work for it. We have to spend our time working uh, even in toiling like the Bible said. It's amazing that sin now made everything hurt, made everything hard. But that's why he made your spouse to go through the hardness together. That's, it was never just meant to be easy and, and cakewalks. In fact, there's a guy that I worked with, I, I worked on his house just a, a few miles south of here, about five miles south uh, towards Kirkland. And um, 
I asked him what he does. He, he makes custom cabinetry, and I said, oh, that's, that's awesome. I heard you're, you're building like a, a millionaire's house. And he said, well, yeah, there, it's this boy. His parents built this steel company, and they're worth millions. And, and, and so the boy, I, he, this is like his fourth home, and he's building it in Zionsville. I thought, oh, cool. Like, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm building a party barn right now. well, it just ended this past week. I said, oh, done? No, mom cut him off. What'd the total get to? Eight million. Devastation. And then to find out that was his third or fourth home. He's got him in Florida. He's got him in Colorado. And I said, well, man, what, what's he do? And uh, he goes, I don't know. I think he works. And so he began to show me pictures of Corvettes just sitting in this empty garage of the house that's a multi-million dollar house and some party barn worth millions of bucks just to be crazy because the guy has life so easy that nothing else matters. Stop looking for an easy life. Stop looking for an easy marriage. In fact, I began to ask Bob. Bob knows nothing. This isn't my neighbor. I don't know why all these elderly guys I run into seem to be named Bob. It's their real names, I promise. I'll tell you a last name, but it might make it to them yet. Amen. And so I began to ask. I said, so uh, must be nice, man. That sure sounds like the life, doesn't it? And he goes, well, it might be, but you'd have to ask his fourth wife. <laughs> I said, how old's this guy? He goes, he's younger than you. Ease of life doesn't make you just get it all together. Doesn't make your humanity go away. Doesn't make life easy. It's okay if life is hard. Hello? Your marriage is worth it. If you're just holding on for your, your brother and sister, well, I'm not married. Okay, think of your family, those others that are married. Think of your pastor and his wife going through cancer, all these different things that don't make sense. Why do bad things happen to good people? All these different questions of the evil just seem to get away with everything, and they live forever, and they never perish. But here are these good people. We heard it last Wednesday. These, these good, godly people that go and hit the grave and all this stuff that happens. But it's okay. Because marriage is supposed to be hard. That's why he gave you a helpmate, even when things were easy. Before we had to go and sweat at the toil of our brow and all this other stuff and, 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 and conception and, and birthing, all hurting and all these sort of things before. All that happened to go down because the knowledge was now in man of, of good and evil. Before all that transpired, he made somebody to deal with you in hardship. That's the point of marriage, amen? If the music would come. I'm going to tell you about these two people. And I think the reason why I, I, I researched these two and I, I have a story about these two is because sometimes if we're not careful, we can look at somebody else's marriage and go, wow, they've got it messed up. If I tell you about my wife too much, she might go home and she might want to talk about tonight's message. She might want to talk about the things I said. She might want to talk about the stories I brought up. I never warned her. She might ask who Lakeisha is. She might want to know some things. And so we can look across this place and go, wow, your marriage is messed up. Your marriage isn't right. Yours isn't how the Bible says. Yours isn't this. Yours isn't that, right? I want to tell you about two people the best I can. The first is Ann Morrow. Ann Morrow met this aviator named Charles Lindbergh, and we've heard the name, and some of you know more about the story than even I do. A, a Smith-educated, well-bred, bookish sort of lady that really had it all put together, but she went and she decided, I'm not going to be 
smitten by this man who is now the most famous person in the world, the first one to fly from continent to continent. They said that he had close to 5 million people show up. This was in the 30s. 5 million people show up when he landed as a celebratory parade. The world was fascinated with Nimrod. He was a larger-than-life person. He had everything together. And so she began to tell herself, I'm not going to be infatuated with him. Well, she met him. Turns out she very was much smitten. And so she was a person that was well-educated, that had a voice and had a lot to offer the world and, and even her family and herself. And, and as she became married to Charles Lindbergh, she realized that he very much was going to control the way things went down. He wasn't going to be allowing her to just talk freely. Even when they dated, she had to use code names about him. And uh, I forget the name she came up with, but um, some other name like a, a Robert or a Richard. And she would always write to her family that I've met this man and, and here's who he is and here's the great things about him. And, and uh, she even reflects at one point, says, I was convinced I must protect him and myself from intrusion into our private life. But what a sacrifice to make, never to speak or to write deeply or honestly. I to whom an experience was not finished until it was written or shared in conversation. One that understood the value of communicating, that loved it deeply, had to finally stop talking in order to honor her husband. She couldn't even cry in public. Charles was a hard man. As much as he was revered and loved, he very much would tell her, you don't cry around me, you go somewhere else. So it was at the birth of their baby, Charles Lindbergh Jr., that got kidnapped at about 18 months of age. Taken out of the home, I mean, if you've never ever, has anybody ever heard of Charles Lindbergh Jr.? If you haven't heard it, there's all sorts of stories written throughout the eons of time, the past hundred years or so, about that baby's death and birth and everything else and the kidnapping. And the story goes that he paid the ransom finally and they were supposed to have proof of life and the baby was supposed to come back, to which it never happened. They got the money and the, the kidnappers got away, but just a few blocks from the home, they found the baby in the woods, torn to pieces by animals because it had probably died there ever since it was kidnapped. Probably falling out of the window it was kidnapped from and all sorts of devastation happened. And so we go back to Anne, the mom, the mother. Half of the marriage, right? Half of the covenant. There she was and finally Charles looked at her and goes, you can cry now. And the emotions that begin to flood out of her and, and the, the, the finally the conversation and it was about 15 years later as everything transpired that Charles was being hated because he was one of the main people against the, the Second World War and so much had happened. But finally, and, and even in his death, uh, Anne began to live on and she finally got to a point where she had a voice, even in their marriage, began to write and, and sell best-selling books and, and got to where nobody was talking about Charles, but all of a sudden they were talking about Anne a little bit. And, and when you look at the marriage, it seems like everything's just tipped overbearing husband, no room for the wife to grow, silence put away. Yet even in that, and I'm not saying they were Pentecostal by any means, but God can use tough relationships to turn lives around. The last story, and I promise to end with this, if you'd stand with me. have no but uh, no idea how much I've skipped but thank God amen near the conclusion of our most famous war 
the words were penned four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth to this continent a new nation conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in this great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a large sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men living and dead who have struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never be forgot what they did here. For us, is it, it is us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work that they fought here. Having thus far so notably advanced, it is rather for us to be here to dedicate this great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we are increased devotion to that cause for which they gave that last full measure of devotion. We are highly res. Uh, that we are highly resolved to these dead shall not give that they have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from this earth. We know that to be the Gettysburg Address of Abraham Lincoln. You ready for it? Shortly before Lincoln left for Gettysburg, his son Tad became ill. This once again intensified his wife, Mary, and her hysterics as she was reminded anew of a son that she had lost just two years earlier. With all the distractions at home, Lincoln was able merely to scribble out a few notes as he left for Pennsylvania. In this highly emotional moment, Lincoln could not be forgiven for delivering his words with less than powerful rhetoric. One reporter described Lincoln's delivery as sharp, unmusical treble voice. The applause was scattered and restrained so much that Lincoln believed that he had failed miserably. He leaned over and told a friend, it is a flat failure and the people are disappointed. But the words were true and genuine enough. They were moving, they were powerful. They would eventually etch them in stone. It would be one of the greatest speeches our nation has ever heard for a place that was torn apart had all seen. He did this as his wife might be the worst first lady our country has ever known. He was engaged to her at one point, but she became so crazy and hysterical over the stupidest stuff that he broke it off and ran away and she could manipulate herself back into his life. To where again, he finally said, okay, Mary, you're right. I've got to do what's honorable. He was looking at another lady and was, was moving on with life. We're done with this relationship. And she began to convince him, nope, we've come this far. It's only right that we marry. And so he finally said, okay, Mary, I'll marry you. And so I've read it in other books, and the phrase struck me so, so powerfully, probably a year and a half or so ago. And it said that at their wedding was served warm wedding cake because Mary, when she heard that Lincoln was going to marry her, decided this is happening today. And what seemed so chaotic, crazy 
and one of these ladies that have been such a thorn in the flesh to one of our greatest presidents and leaders, writing one of the most famous addresses, knowing his son might die, to which he had lost one just a couple years prior, we see a man that is not a shamble of himself, but one that is in perfect alignment with everything he's supposed to do in his life. I said all that to say this, whether it's warm wedding cake that you had, or whether it was just a cold judge's courtroom, your marriage is powerful. Your marriage matters. And your marriage is essential to you having the fulfillment of God in your life. I don't know why your past is the way it is. I don't know why some of you are going through it now. don't know why God allows such pain, but it's okay. Hold on. Well, I didn't choose this, Brandon. I, I wanted my marriage to work. That's fine. Hold on to God's unchanging hand. If nothing else, hold on to him. Above all, he wanted to show his love for the church. I'm sorry if I cry too hard for some of you that are hurt. I look around this room and I see brave faces. I see some that are drawn to tears, some that are in the middle of loss, but God made us for a purpose. In the middle of your marriage, as many shambles as it might seem, as much contention as there might be, God still wants to control your marriage. He still wants to have control of your home. He still wants to lead you in all paths of righteousness. Don't give up on what God has given doesn't matter if your husband tells you don't speak. doesn't matter if your wife drives you to the point of insanity. Don't give up on what God has given you. The easy road is where you'll lose it all. Again, if they've left you, I understand that. Don't give up on God. If some of you never made it to the altar and bad things happened, I get that. I understand all that. I'm not here to talk about that, but I'm telling you, God is your answer for everything. Jesus strung out on a cross for everybody's life, every soul to come to repentance, and every soul to be baptized, filled with the Holy Ghost, and to make its way to heaven. Amen? I wonder if you would grab the hand of your neighbor and maybe meet me down at this altar. circumstances aren't meant to crush you. The sole purpose is to add value to your life. And so in all that you do, all that you say, every day you wake up, every chance you get to talk to a co-worker or a family member or a customer or a homemaker or whatever the case might be, even your spouse, it, it requires us to go into every day. Brother Reading had an opportunity to speak with us ministers just a few weeks ago and and he talked about love to a layer that I've never seen and I plan on bringing it to you when I talk about raising sons and daughters but love is essential the only love and if you hear me say it again I'm sorry the only love the Bible says that we have to have is not filial it's not I'm just saying you need to leave all these things alone 
It's not about your brotherly love. It's not about your spouse, husband, and wife, loving somebody, falling in love with them. It's not about your love as a parent, but it's agape love, which knows no bounds. Even in the midst of what might be sad or might be the seeming the end of your story, it's not over yet. And you can take those moments and say, you know what, I'm going to cover it. I'm going to cover my marriage in some God-like love. And what that looks like is praying, God, don't straighten them out, just bless them. They might be a crook, and I'm married to them. Bless them. They might be a jerk, and I don't understand. They treat me wrong. They don't let me speak. It's okay. Bless them. Love them. Pray for them. Don't get contentious. My marriage is over fine. Pray for the one that left. How do I do that? I don't know yet, but I'm going to start by just saying, God, touch them. Well, this one hurt us. Fine, pray for them. This one tried to ruin our marriage. We had it said about us for years. Well, they're just church hoppers. Nope, just ain't find the right one yet. I'm sorry. I love every pastor that I've ever had been a, a pastor and a shepherd over my life, and I'm not trying to go down any rabbit holes, but, but we pray for them. We pray for their church. Pray for those that are trying to use you. Pray for those that don't have but evil things to say about you. Pray, love, show them what God's trying to do in their life. That's what God wants to see in your marriage, in your home, in your family. He wants to see you love them when nobody else can. I want us to pray together that God would begin to show that love to us. Lord, we thank you, Jesus. God, I pray, show us your love tonight. Lord, let us see what it means to love beyond ourselves. Lord, when the pain comes, when the hurt comes, and the decisions are made, even when we don't agree with them, Lord, help us to love. Lord, when the boss might fire us or let us go or not give us opportunity, Lord, let us pray for them, Lord, that you would use them for your kingdom. God, when the husband is contentious, Lord, when the wife seems to be in a bad mood, Lord, I pray, let us shower them with love. Let us pray that God's will would be done in them. Lord, have your way, I pray. Amen. Won't you take just a few moments to begin to cry out to God? Take a few moments if you're with your spouse, just hold their hand or put an arm around them. Pray, God, remove contention. Remove those stumbling blocks, Lord, which lead to, to destruction, God. Take out all sin, Lord. Let us lead a life that's holy, Lord, that's upright. That's it, church. That's it. I'm done speaking. Let's just cry out for a few more.